Chris O'Toole is a soldier. It's who he is to his core. We have an incredibly deep conversation about service before self and the imagery of what he saw and what he was asked to do on deployment in Iraq. It's humbling. And here's what I love about this episode today. He is a prime example of why we started this podcast nearly a year ago, to share stories of the men and women among us who have gone beyond themselves to pick up the six. Chris has done that, and he continues to do it. This is Pick Up the Six Podcast. Chris O'Toole, welcome to Pick Up the Six Podcast. Uh, Thank you, Brian. Absolutely, man. I'm excited to have you on the show today. Uh, As folks have listened in the past, I often give the reference point to the person that connected us, right? And so if you've been listening recently, we've had some amazing female fighter pilots. Well, they all kind of spurred off of the interview that we did with Casey Campbell and how that all worked out. All right. I usually tell you guys, Brad Borders introduced me to this person and told me to have them on Pick Up the Six, which you've heard me say more than once on this show, and that's our connection. And so when Brad Borders who again has been on our show a few times, says, hey, I got somebody that is worth having to pick up the sixth conversation with. I say, you got it, chap. And that's what brings us together on this day. So it's a Brad Borders connection, which is good for both of us. Uh, yes, and Brad Borders is, is good for, for all of us. Yeah, um, uh, we met many years ago in the Army, and uh, and it's uh, funny how our paths keep crossing. Yeah, it sure is, man. It's, it's a small world, and you guys are, are relatively close in the grand scheme of things. You're sort of up in the kind of Winston-Salem area. He's down in Statesville, you know, kind of area. So you're not too, too far away, but you're not next door neighbors by any stretch of the imagination. So, which is cool, uh, man. What's uh, we're going to get to know you hear about your military story, how you uh, uh, have gone on from that and how you continue to serve men today, much like you did in the military, but we're close to Christmas, man. So, I mean, what's life? Is it busy? Is it crazy? What's going on these days for you and your family? We're uh, I'm, I'm, um, married and we have an 11 year old and a 13 year old and uh it's the middle of wrestling season and basketball oh season yeah and oh yeah christmas season and <laughs> it's uh it's a uh, fun busy but we're running around and uh and you know we thankfully we uh my wife and i split forces and she goes divide, well, divide and conquer that's the only way you can get it done but it's uh right. today was the last day of school for the kids and my yeah same with mine yep so everybody's going to be home now, which is awesome. And, um, and I, you know, I can, I can get some days off and we get to yeah. spend some time together and yeah. uh, I've worked many Christmases and this is one I don't have to work and I'm thankful. So that's right. The military for you uh, became reality when you were in college. Uh, it's the mid nineties. You're at VMI, uh, which is Virginia military Institute. Uh, I am a Sigma Nu fraternity uh, brother oh, yeah, which was yeah. founded at vmi it's founded at vmi that's, that's right it's founded at vmi uh so i've always had a bit of a kinship to vmi uh from that small connection so you're in college uh at vmi uh and obviously the military becomes a reality for you so it's just, what, what was the motivation there how, how did you end up down that road and, and why why was it for you uh well you know i never had a plan b in my life i always wanted to be a soldier um and I, I never, you know, I guess kids go through their, their, you know, elementary years, mm-hmm. middle school years, whatever, and they bounce back and forth from what they want to be when they grow up. And I was consistently wanted to be a soldier and I never had a plan B. I always wanted to be in the army. Um, you know, I, I came from a, I guess you would say a military family. There, there's, there's veterans throughout my family, no career military folks, just, um, you know, everyone, you know, did an enlistment or, or whatever. And, um, but it, I don't know what it was. It just was, it, it was always what I was going to be never, never deviated from that. Um, when it was time to graduate from college or graduate from high school, rather, I said, I need to go to a military school. Um, I thought that was going to make me a better, a better leader and a better soldier. So, um, I applied at the, at West Point and, and they, they told me no. And, uh, and um, I went fine moving on to the next thing because yeah, I'm yeah, going to be yeah, a soldier yeah. whether you tell me or not. Yeah, exactly. I don't have to, I don't have to go there to do it. Um, you know, and I applied it at, at civilian colleges as well, as well with ROTC programs, but I really had my, my heart set on, I needed that experience. Mm-hmm. I needed to go through the military school uh, experience to be a better leader, better soldier. And, um, 
I went to VMI and I was, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. And so I'm an out-of-state uh, out of state student paying out-of-state tuition and I was paying my own way. And uh, it, was, it was kind of funny. I never thought about enlisting in the, in the National Guard or anything like that. I was just going to go in the Army after graduation. Mm -hmm. And um, first couple of days or our, our our sophomore year, I'm walking down the stoop and a kid runs up to me who's a New Jersey guy. And he's like, Chris, you got to join the Army today. And I said, okay, <laughs> why would I want to do that? Right. And, uh, and he said, uh, we're getting in-state tuition if we join the Virginia Guard. And I said, sign me up, brother. So uh, we ran to the recruiter as fast as we could. And, mm. uh, and I started my, you know, officially started, uh, you know, my, my affiliation with the Army through the, the Nas Virginia National Guard in 96 when I was a mm -hmm. sophomore mm -hmm. at DMI. Were you, were you the kind of kid that? I mean, did you look at like Citadel anywhere else like that and just be a my kind of I went to the Citadel. I, I looked at the Citadel. I looked at uh, Norwich University. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, when I was in high school, our junior year of high school, um, I went to Elkin High School, small high school in uh, yep. Surrey County. Um, they started a junior ROTC program at my junior year. And uh Colonel McGrew was our, our first uh, instructor. And he's just an awesome guy, you know, yeah. retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel from the Army. And, and just, uh, you know, that was the first Army officer I'd ever been around. And uh, our, our junior year, which was our first R you know, ROTC experience, uh, his son was a student at Norwich. And he, he came down and did like yeah. a visit. And I thought, man, military school is what I need. And so I, I checked out Norwich. Uh, I did a visit to Citadel. I was accepted at the Citadel and uh, I was accepted at VMI. And um, to be honest with you, that was a toss up between the two. You know, uh, financially, it was about the same commitment. I was out of state either way. Mm -hmm. uh, and what it really boiled down to was uh, the distance. Um, I was dating my wife you know, my girlfriend at the time, we've been together. high school sweethearts now oh, since the ninth grade, brother. Nice uh, man. Um, but uh, she's uh, she went to App State in, in Boone, North Carolina. Damn right. She did. Awesome. <laughs> well, and I applied there and I should have gone there, but I'm, I'm not very smart. That's so right. um, I, I you'd, have been, you'd have been there with Eric church, man, based on those years you're talking. That's about. right. That's right. Yeah, I just but, missed him. She was, I, mean, I would have just missed you too. Cause I got there in 99. Okay. So she she was 94, 98. Uh, Beautiful. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to be a little bit closer to home and it, bore, sure. and it broke down to like a two hour drive or a four hour drive. Yeah, I get it. Yep. And I get so, it. There was no real allegiance one way or the other. Both, I think, are great schools and, and provided, you know, what I was wanting to get after. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, so I went to VMI. You know, that, the, yeah. you know, that was the choice. I didn't know anyone that went there, never met anyone that went there or that graduated from there. Um, and, but I just, I thought the military school route was the right route for me uh, yeah. to, just to dive into it. You, uh, you graduated from college in 99, right? So you're part of the national guard then you go on active duty after that. Um, you were part of that. I'm going in the military before nine 11 and nine 11 happens, uh, you know, during those early years uh, for you. But, and I got to think that even drove home even more that you were doing the right thing that you needed to be doing. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, service was always something that was important to me. Um, you know, my mom was a nurse um, and, and, you know, she's a, she's a follower of Christ. I watched her always serve at the church. I watched mm -hmm. her, uh, you know, and I watched people always come up to a small town family. I watched people come up to her and, you know, always everywhere we were, ask her, you know, uh, you know, medical questions, whatever. They always wanted help from her. And she's just a, a giving person. And, um, you know, uh, so many times in my life, you're around someone that, that just reinforces what you should be doing. Uh, and everyone, you know, puts a piece of your puzzle together and they mm. put their, their thumbprint on you, you know, mm -hmm. and you carry that. And, uh, you know, my, my wrestling coach in, in high school, you know, taught me what hard work looked like, yep. you know, and, and that, you know, I was, a, I was a bad wrestler, um, you know, and, but I loved the sport and I want, and, you know, four years of hard work. And, and, you know, by the end of my time there, I was more successful, you know, and, yep. and he showed me that hard work pays off and that, that, you know, nothing, nothing gained is, it, it, is easy if, it, if it's That's really right. worth it, you know? And so all these people have just, you know, invested into me 
and 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 I was, you know, they're getting nothing out of it, right? So I see the selflessness of people, and I think that kind of environment drove a selfless attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Yep. And um, and I just wanted, and and, and I'm, I'm definitely not perfect, and and and, and make mistakes daily, but I just I, I always felt like the mission is more important than me, and I, I need to be a, a, a part of this organization that is truly. Uh, driven to serve other people. And, you know, you think about those that have come before you and all of that, that just drove me. And, um, and I loved it when I would, you know, when I would come home or whatever, and I would see my friends and people would say where, the, where, where they were working or what they were doing. And I would say, I'm a soldier. And it wasn't where I worked. It's what I was, yeah, you know, that's I am right. a soldier. And, um, I love to hear like the, the, the World War II generation, they would always call it being in the service. Mm-hmm. You ever hear, you know, yeah, you're know. right. My grandfather used to say the same thing. Yeah. They always say when I was yeah, in the service, when I was in the service, yeah, you're right. that's a great that. point, man. Do you, I don't think yeah. you hear that anymore. No, you don't. I've started saying it. I've you should say it, it because I want to grab. You that, know what? The other thing too, back. is like, we just, we don't talk the way they talked. We kind of need to return to some of that, to be honest with you. I was reading Teddy Roosevelt's way before them. And everybody's very familiar with the man in the arena uh, quote. I would challenge you to go read some of the later parts of it. I mean, the the way he puts sentences together, but you're even right. Even that World War II generation, they would say that all the time. All all of them said it when I was in the the service. Yeah. And I think it doesn't doesn't even like put together like a branch affiliation. It doesn't say in the army when I was there. Sure, when I was sure. in the service and, and I just, you know, that was, that was always important to me. And I, you know, my grandmother was a, a, a driving force and um, you know, she, my grandfather was in the Marine Corps and, and she had brothers that were in, in every branch. And you know, she talks about the sacrifices made just holistically by, by the community, you know, during those times. And she, you know, her, her son was in Vietnam and just, you know, and, and I think about how, how these folks are, are, are are pouring their lives into the service of others. And, yeah. um, and it just, it, it, it's one of those things, man, you look yourself in the mirror to brush your teeth and you, and you like knowing that that's what you're doing. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, I joined a peacetime army, right. You know, the worst thing you could do was a Bosnia rotation at that time. And, uh, and I signed up to go to Korea as my first duty station. And that was like the hardship tour, you know, um, but I went to Korea, was a platoon leader there, loved every bit of it, just because you got to pour yourself into your yeah. soldiers. Yeah. Um, I came home and uh, Jill and I got married. Uh, you know, we'd been, you know, like, like I said, been together since the ninth grade. And this is, you know, now 2001. Uh, she's teaching and I'm at Fort Campbell, Kentucky at that time. And we got married in June of 01. And, you know, and again, the Army was kind of an adventure you know, you saw places you'd never seen before. You get to experience things. But, you know, it was a peacetime army. And, yeah. then, you know, September 11th, everyone's world changed. It sure does. Um, uh, it, it In an instant, right, things change. And, you know, as guys that were, you know, growing up in, in the early 90s, you know, sort of going, you know, you're going through high school, heading off to college, you know, you, you remember hearing about Iraq, but it was related to Kuwait and all these other yeah, different yeah. things. And 9-11 happens and focus shifts to Afghanistan and focus shifts to Iraq. And and how can we eradicate this radical terrorism that has been brought to our shores? And so that means guys like you who sign up pre-9-11, who probably never think they'd end up in a country like Afghanistan or Iraq do. And you end up yeah. on deployment in Iraq. So let's go into that deployment. We're going to talk about some heavy stuff. And Chris, uh, I'll say this for our audience. And I say it for you. We, we don't take for granted what it takes for, for, uh, for heroes like yourself. And I, and I know you're going to be like, Brian, stop it. Right. We don't take for granted the work that you did in the military, the things you've seen and the conversation we're going to have right now, because we're going to talk about some things that you saw in this deployment that are intense, man, quite frankly, they're pretty intense. Uh, and we'll, and we'll get to why we're sharing those stories, but just take me into man, a kid, you know, in the army, being a soldier. And it's like, all right, now I'm heading to Iraq. Right, well, fast forward a little bit and then you're going. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, j- just a little bit of pre Iraq, um, kind of the getting ready for Iraq. Mm. I was a platoon leader, a medical platoon leader, um, 
so I was in an infantry battalion at the time. You know, we had medics that took care of our took care of our our, our, our trigger pullers, and um, I'd kind of aged out of being a platoon leader. It was time to grow up and 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 go get a, another job in the army. Even though I want, you know, everybody wants to stay in that in that spot forever. Uh, and I, I got uh, voluntold for a job that really hadn't existed yet. And it was, we were opening the school of combat medicine at Fort mm -hmm. Campbell. Mm -hmm. And um, it was this complete, and you know, those that have been in the military, you know, will, will understand what I'm saying, but we were going from a civilian minded medicine to a, 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 a combat effectiveness, uh, you know, battlefield treatment, you know, control the bleeding tourniquets first. And this was like medical blasphemy, you know, um, and, and if you were in, in that time, you, you know, you know what I'm talking about, you know, tourniquets last resort before that. And now we're talking about, you know, when in doubt, whip it out and slap a tourniquet on people. Um, and, and we ended up training for, uh, several months running every single medic through and everyone we could through to get ready for where we were going. We were getting ready to invade Iraq. So, you know, we had, I'd had about six months or maybe, maybe eight months of just constantly thinking about casualties on the battlefield. That's all we were talking about, how we could, could you know, pre preserve life to get them to, you know, further treatment and things like that. So I would say we were, you know, we were pretty mission focused, right? But we mm -hmm. still were a little bit, well, we were very naive, right? You know, we, we, all of us were young. We remember watching Desert Storm on television uh, and not belittling that, war at all but you know we saw it on television and it was and it yeah. was over rather quickly and things like that so here we are and and we're and we're, we're crossing the border into iraq so um we we get there in the early 03 and uh the invasion begins and um you know i started in kuwait and ended in uh mosul which is in northern iraq so i've pretty much ran the the you know south to north of almost the almost the whole country um and you know it seems like it was you know I, it was almost just you know you, you you were in a different spot every night we would um it seemed like or we would stay very short times in locations mm -hmm. we would secure one location uh the vehicle convoy would you know catch up and then we'd get on helicopters and sort of leapfrog forward to a new spot. And all that happened until I want to say May or June, I guess. Um, we ended up getting to, to northern Iraq and and that was our limit of advance. You know, we, we started establishing forward operating bases from scratch and things like that. And uh, we were still treating casualties, you know, there were still combat operations going on. Um, but the major, you know, offensive was over, you know, the major push, uh, the invasion, I guess, was, you know, we'd all reached where we were going to be for a while. And, um, and I, I would say that I had a, a, you know, it was, it was uh, like the Wild West, but, you know, it was for those of us, I would say those of us in the early invasion, and, and I'm speaking for me, I, I shouldn't mm -hmm. generalize because everybody's, you know, touch with the wars different um but it seemed like the the living conditions were horrible you know because nothing was established but you know in like 05 to 07 the the risk was much much greater you know we we hadn't gotten into the ied world yet you know it was still you know we had we had fought a uniformed army at first and you know mm -hmm. we were uh, you know in my time there we were just getting into the you know, the more, um, you know, uh, terror related operations and things like that. So not belittling anyone's, uh, um, involvement, but, you know, ours was a little more traditional in the beginning and then, uh, you know, that changed, but our, our living conditions were terrible, but our, our it seemed like we were a little bit, um, safer. I, I don't mm. know. I thought so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as opposed to like the Ramadi of 06 and things like that, you know, it got really crazy. Like, yeah, dude, like it's going down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, guys, troops in contact all the time. All the time things yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, it was really like this tidal wave of, of American involvement, you know, until we got to where we were, where we stopped. Um, and then our mission changed and 
you know, I guess this is the unique part of my deployment um, because I've never met another person that did this part of the job. Yeah. Um, but we, we were, we were, you know, got some Mosul and we were, uh, we'd established the, the FOB and we were starting to do small level humanitarian operations. Uh, we were taking medicine that we would recover from, a, you know, an Iraqi aid station or whatever. And we were distroing out to hospitals or orphanages or whatever. And, you know, we were, we were, you know, basically doing kind of civil affairs operations where we would assess a need and then go try to meet the need. And it was a very low scale, you know, kind of one place at a time. And I really don't know how I got roped into the, to the, the rest of my deployment. Um, but they needed someone to head up a, a group of folks um, and, and they called us the maggot, which was kind of an odd acronym, but we were the mass grave assessment team. And I didn't really know what that was gonna entail. Um, unlike a lot of uh, officers in the army, I was pretty good at land nav, which is, is uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of NCOs will, will argue that. But I was pretty good at land nav. That was like one of the only things I could do is not get lost all the time. And um, the way this started was we said, great, great. We're going to have this go find some stuff that nobody really wants to have to find. Yeah, well, we didn't really know what we were looking for the first time. We were given a a grid coordinate. And uh, I was told to get some guys together. So I grabbed some dudes for some security. Um, You know, we had, I don't remember how many vehicles we took. You know, we had to have, you know, there was a minimum vehicle convoy situation. Uh, you know, we had to have crew serve weapons and all the, you know, there was all these requirements. So, and I was a really young captain. Um, but like when you become a captain, they don't know if you're an old captain or a new captain. So they just said, you know, O'Toole, you're in charge of this group. Go to this grid coordinate and and really find what's there. And I didn't even know at that time, it wasn't called the maggot yet. We didn't know what we were looking for. I literally, Brian, drove out. We drove out in the middle of the desert. We got off the hard pack road. And I'm following my map and my GPS. And we're just driving over open desert. And I get to a literal hole in the ground that is about the size of the hood of my Humvee. And I was, you know, I'm thinking, and it's hot, of course. Um, You know, we're out there. We've been driving for a while. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm successful because I've I've literally found a hole in the ground. um, And here I stand. Mm -hmm. Well, and I had no interpreter at the time. So I didn't really know, you know, I was, I was trying to, you know, get something from a, a, you know, a local guy that was standing there and we didn't know what we had. We had a hole in the ground. And um, one thing that was important to note is uh, we had our, our chaplain, um, great guy. And he had, he had, he was an, an older guy. He had been in Vietnam as a draftee and then he, he did his time in the army he went into uh, in the ministry and then he came back as a military chaplain and he had uh, a lot oh, man, of incredible service, man. Oh yeah. Like 33 yeah. years of service. I mean, just, you know, one of the best dudes on the planet earth. And um, you know, he, he'd been, he'd been a, a, assigned as a chaplain to special operations, a, a lot of his career. So he'd yeah, been, so he'd been through some gnarly stuff. Yeah, and he'd been everywhere. Are, he'd yeah. small, yeah, everything, you know, he'd yeah. done it all. So he was, you know, he was experienced uh, in, in, in that. And he, he told me, and I, you know, I just, I would go to chapel service, you know, so mm-hmm. I knew him from chapel service. I wasn't, wasn't necessarily friends with him, but I just knew him and he knew me because I would go to, to church on Sundays when, when we could. And uh, when we were getting ready to take off on our little first trip, he said, Chris, can I go with you? And tactically, I was like, I don't really need a chaplain. You guys don't even have guns, so I don't need you. Right. But I did like him a lot. And I was like, sure, chaplain. And who can say no to a chaplain? Right. Fair so point. I was like, yeah, jump in. And uh, which is, you know, Brad Borders, chaplain. We can't say no to that guy. Well, that's why everybody he tells me to talk to, I talk to. I can't say well, no right, to chaplain. You can't say no to him because, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll tell the Lord. <laughs> that's right. I don't need that hanging over my head. No, I got I have enough problems. Right. But um, so Chaplain Brown jumps in the vehicles with us. So anyway, we go out, we find this hole in the ground and I literally don't know what to do. And I'm the mm. guy that's supposed to be in charge. So 
uh, one of my NCOs is with me and he's like, Hey, Chris, let's, well, let's just go down there and figure out what it is. And we didn't know yeah. if there was maybe yeah. a you know, cache weapons, whatever. So we had no equipment and we grabbed some cargo straps and tied them together and basically lowered each other down into this hole just to see what was down there. And, um, because the, you know, this grid court was obviously important. It came to the, to the, to my boss who told me to go find it and see what it was. Mm-hmm. And when we lowered down into this, um, the best way I can describe it is it, it reminded me of, uh, the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, or no, I'm sorry, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. When he's, when the 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 people are in the wall, like mm. the dead bodies are in the wall, mm-hmm. like in the mud wall of the holy land. And you know, when I got down in the hole, I was it was there was just dead bodies around us, and they were had all been beheaded. And I was, I was, you know, like, you know, this isn't something that I expected to find down here. Um, but, it, you know, it, it very much appeared that these guys had been beheaded and they were just thrown into this hole. Like the hole wasn't prepared for them. It was just a place to ditch these bodies. How many do you think so, were in there? There were 18 men in there, in that one. Um, so I climb out of the, you know, we climb out of the hole. And I had two um, CID agents with me, which is uh, like investigators for the military. They were mm-hmm. warrant officers. And I think they knew what we were up to more than I knew what we were up to. Cause I literally just found a hole in the ground and didn't know why I was there. Um, but CID was with me, which was not a common thing. So I, I didn't know what to do. So I said, well, I guess we need to, to pull these, guys out and and see if we can figure anything out you know do you have any idea who they are no they're there they were in um they were in you know civilian clothes um but i thought maybe if i get them out and maybe i can find some id cards maybe i can find some sort of commonality you know um maybe it's a family Mm -hmm. i don't know you know um so we go back into the hole and we're, and again, we had no real equipment uh, to do something like this. So we were strapping the bodies with a cargo strap and we would tow them kind of like, you know, pull them up by, by hand. And um, the heads had been cut off. So they were throwing the heads out of the hole and we were catching them and stacking them, you know, like lining them up. And, um, you know, uh, you know, you're not proud of stuff like this, but you, you know, you say things to make light of it. Um, you know, one of my soldiers was like, well, I guess we're doing a head count, you know, just, you know, such a, I mean, you roll up on this moment, like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're trying to just get through it, you know, and guys guys are just, you know, they're making comments, um, and you're, you're just getting through it, you know, Mm because, um, that's not what I, you know, when I woke up that morning, I was like, me and my guys are going to go do this. Um, so we, we, we get everybody out, all the, all the 18 folks, we get them out, we, you know, we've lined them up, you know, we, we laid them on the desert, you know, on the sand and we got the heads out there and, you know, we got whatever, and we didn't get a whole lot of information. Um, from what I remember, we just, there were 18 guys there and, um, I remember standing there and I was trying to think, what am I going to do with them? You know, what do I do? And I remember just staring at them and, you know, my guys were getting water or whatever. So I was just kind of standing there by myself trying to think of what our next move was. And um, the chaplain walks up to me and he just puts his hand on my shoulder, you know, and uh, I said, chaplain, I don't know what to do next. And he said, we're going to bury him, Chris. And I was like, you're absolutely right. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bury these guys. And we're going to do that because that didn't happen the first time. Mm. You know, when they were killed, um, they were obviously just cast out. Yep. You know? yep. So we buried all 18 of them. These guys would have been um, 
they would have been uh, against the evil dictatorship that was right we, trying to run we, this country. Yeah, what we found out later is these guys were Kurdish. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know it at the time. So if you remember back in 03, um, you know, we had Kurdish fighters fighting with us. You know, we fought yeah. alongside Kurdish uh, folks. And the Kurds had been, you know, they had been victimized by the Saddam regime for, you know, years and years and years prior to our yeah. arrival. But we found out later that's what these guys are. They're Kurdish men. Yeah. And, so, you bur- uh, so you buried 18 of them. We buried 18. And, and it really hit home when the chaplain, you know, we finished burying these guys. And the chaplain said, let's pray. And you could see the faces on all my guys change. Because during the chaplain's prayer, he talks about how these, these men were cast into this hole um, after obviously being brutally murdered. And, uh, and it just hit me so hard that, you know, these, what we're dealing with are victims. And, and, you know, it, it also made me feel guilty because I was like, you know, 30 minutes ago, an hour ago, I was catching their heads being thrown out of the ground. And, uh, you know, I remember we all got together before we convoyed back to the fob and I was just like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we're doing any good here, but we're, we need to, we need to find out who's doing this to people. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And so that, that started the, the maggot, uh, as they called it. And, um, and this was, you know, obviously I, I've never met anybody else that did this job, but every day we would get a new grid coordinate and we would go. And we started, you know, like putting together makeshift equipment, uh, just ropes and shovels and, you know, like sifting uh, screens and things like that. And, um, and, and some of the ones we would go, you know, we'd get a grid coordinate on it, you know, whatever day we would drive out there and, um, and it would be nothing. You know, one time we got one that was a graveyard and I was like, no kidding. There's going to be dead guys all over this. Um, it was a cemetery, you know, so some, you know, not all of them were legit. Um, but unfortunately most of them were, and, you know, every day we would get a new grid coordinate and we would set out and we're still in, you know, we're still in a bad place, right? You know, we're still in, in hostile territory. Yeah. What this is, this is Oh three, right? This is still yeah, three. This is like summertime. Oh three. Yeah. Summer of Oh three. Yeah. Yeah. How so, long, how long did you, how long did this work? Right. How long were you doing this? You're saying every day you're getting grid coordinates. How long did this activity kind of keep up? We did it from about May, June timeframe till August, September. You got to remember, guys, in the grand scheme of things, it's December the 13th, 2003, when Saddam Hussein is captured. Yeah. Come back to that, because I do want to ask you about that moment, right? Having done such heavy work well, before was, that, right? Yeah, and it was, and what you found is, like, we would, we, would, we would find these places, you know, we'd get these coordinates and we would go, and some were old, some were new. Um, some would be all women and children. Um, some would be just a, you know, mixture uh, but there was one particular uh, day that we that we went, and uh, it was, I remember it was so hot, and and we're we're convoying out there, and um, you know you got all your kit on, and and I remember like when you hold your weapon, if you moved your hand on your weapon to a new spot you hadn't been touching, it would burn your hand again. It was just it was so hot outside, and. We had no refrigeration, so our bottled water was like in the back of our truck, and our, you know, it was like drinking hot coffee. You know, it was just—I just remember it was just incredibly hot. And um, we were given this grid coordinate by some local shepherd or something, um, and we drove out there, and it was just—you know—it was just baked sand. And I'm like, man, what are we doing out here? You know, I mean, haven't we done enough that, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you're trying not to say this stuff in front of your soldiers, you know, this is your mission. So you're just going to do it, but you're, you're getting kind of tired of this. And um, I remember it was just baked sand. It was just 
hard sand. And um, he said, right here is where it happened. Right here is where it happened. And there was a, all I remember is there was a crack in the sand. And um, I was like, man, there is nothing here. You know? Yeah. 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 And so just to get, just to humor him, you know, um, and they, we had some people from the Kurdish, you know, government, I know that's not a recognized uh, country, but they, you know, there, there is a, a, a government in place that they, they were yep. sending representatives down um, with flatbed trucks full of caskets and they wanted us to give them their loved ones. Hmm. And uh, that wasn't my call. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be a part of that part of it. Cause I don't know who these people are. I, you know, when, when you find a body, I don't want to give this person to you and say, this is your whatever. And that not be true. Yeah. And there's no records. There's no nothing. I can't, I don't know who these, who these guys and gals are, you know, I just, they're just, they're just victims. Um, so we get out there and we start digging and we had a, a vehicle called a C, I think is what it was called. It's a little engineer vehicle. It looks like a pickup truck with a little backhoe in the back. And this engineer guy was digging for us, you know, and the guy, the shepherd said, here, here it is. This is the spot. This is the spot. So the engineer's digging and he, he'll, he'll scoop up some dirt and, um, and I'm just standing there looking at the hole and uh, he gets about six foot down. I'm like, we're wasting our time. We don't need to be here. And, uh, but you know, Hey, I was told to come here and, and, and investigate it. So that's what we're doing. Well, he digs a couple of more scoops and I see a ball of hair laying in the sand. And I was like, Oh no, we're probably going to find something now, you know? So I said, keep, you know, keep digging. He, he grabbed another scoop or two with the, it's just a little backhoe thing. And, uh, I saw a piece of clothing, like cloth. And I was like, here, you know, we are going to find something, you know? And and now this hole is probably, you know, the size of, of my home V. I probably could set my home V in this hole. But I jumped down in the hole. It's probably eight foot deep now. Because every time he would pick his shovel up, the sand would rush down the mm. sides again. So I thought, I'm going to get in the hole and I'm going to look under the shovel as it goes up. So I can see what I see. And... um so I jumped down in the hole and he's picking shovels of dirt up and he grabs one. And I remember as he's picking it up, I'm in this hole and the sides of the hole start moving uh, like in front and on each side of me. And it's like the whole, the whole thing is moving and you know, he's moving really slow. Like the kid was a, a good operator. He was moving the bucket really slow. And I was like, you know, the whole thing is moving you know and um as the shovel went above my eye level i leaned down to look underneath it and all i saw were just bodies like just wrapped up and and what had happened was the teeth of the shovel had caught the mass of bodies and it was like if you could imagine burying a eight foot two by four and you pick it up in the middle you're picking up the dirt on each mm -hmm. end too, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he was picking this up and uh I just I looked under and it was just and I just remember seeing people just it felt like it just went all around me. And um so I said, hey stop, you know, just stop what you're doing and I want you to empty the shovel right in front of me because I don't know if you got something in the shovel. And it dumped out and I can I can see this little guy today as vividly as I did then, um, but he he fell on my feet and uh, at the time I had a, I didn't have children yet but I had a nephew and that was about the age of this little guy and when the guy hit my feet that's the first thing I thought of was like man my nephew this is mm. this is my nephew's age. And uh, I remember what the kid was wearing. I remember, you know, just everything about him. And um, I went to pick him up just to get him out of the hole. And when I picked him up, I didn't realize, because he obviously was very dirty. Um, they had tried to behead him, but they hadn't gotten all the way through. 
So when he was laying there, he looked like he was complete. But I remember when I picked him up, his head fell backwards because I was like scooping him up under his neck and his knees, you know, like you would hold a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, his head fell back and it just fell off. And I'm just holding this, you know, five, six-year-old, you know, and he's headless. And uh, I just, you know, I I didn't know, you know, and we just, you know, I took him out of the hole and I laid him on the ground and um, I went and, you know, got his head and put his head with his body. And uh, we just, we just kept going. And, uh, you know, we would find families laying together and women clutching babies. And I remember the babies being spotless, no injuries whatsoever. And all I could think was they were buried. Oh man. They were buried alive. And, um, and I remember this one infant had been struck in the head. It looked like with some sort of, I don't know, a hammer or something, but like it's skull and it, the baby didn't have, didn't have hair yet, you know? Mm. And, you know, we're getting these guys and, and, and with these men and women and children out of these holes and we're, we're just lining them up, you know, we're trying to take inventory of them. We'd started like cataloging them, giving them a number um, so we could reference it or whatever. And, and, and our, our SOP became at the end of these, we reburied everybody. Sure, you sure did. Yeah, because that's what we do, because we do the right thing. These animals, these animals, absolutely, right, took the lives of these people. Uh, I want to ask you a question before we uh, talk about when that evil dictator was ultimately captured, mere months after you're doing this work. The the, the last thing I want to touch on, given this, just the heaviness of this, is I know you're a man of faith, but in that moment when you're standing there with that boy, that faith is tested, my brother. Well, right? I'll tell you. I, I, right? tell, tell me that. Tell me. Tell us that story about the, the low I, moment of of sort of your faith journey through this. Yeah, I never. You know, every you know, I knew there were there were there are good guys and bad guys in this world, but I I never had experienced an, a level of evil mm. like that, and I remember standing there looking at all this and we ended up um reburying 78 guys that day people you know men and women and children um and we were told that that particular site extends a grid square which is a thousand meters by a thousand meters um we just we found the the edge of it um it actually went on for a long ways um, and I remember standing there and I just, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to say, but a soldier, well, do, what, came, what do you say? You, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I'm not really proud of this, but sure. a soldier came up to me that knew I was a Christian and he said, where's your God now? Mm. And I remember, you know, saying, I don't know, but he's not here. And uh, I remember, Brian, that when that came out of my mouth, I wished I could have grabbed it yeah, and stuck it back in there. Mm. I wish I would have never said that because what I had seen and, uh, and, I, and I'm, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't see anything worse than anyone else that served our, our country. Uh, it was just different. Yeah. It was a, a, you know, a different experience and I'm not, I'm not elevating mine, you know, saying it was worse than others, but it was heavy. And, um, but it, and, and it broke your heart to see these families that were wrecked by one man's desire yeah. to, to just be ruthless. And, uh, I didn't know this kind of evil truly existed in the world. I'd never, I'd never seen anything like this. Um, and, and you know, at this point, it's it's May, right? I'd seen men die. You know, yeah, we had treated yeah. casualties. You know, um, 
you know, combat operations had to happen for months on end. So, but those know, are warriors that are a part right, of a these battle. These are kids, man. These are these are these are victims. These yeah. are victims. Victims. That's exactly right. I mean, that's all of savagery. Yeah. And, uh, but what hurt the most, I think, to be honest with you, is when when I said that out loud, that I don't I don't know where God is, but He's not here. And He was there, Brian. He was there every step of the way. You know, and and I know that, but in that moment, I didn't feel it, Mm. you know, and I was, I don't know, I was 25 or six. I can't remember how old I was. And I, you know, I'd been following Christ since I was 15 years old, at least, you know, the best I could, you know, know, with all my flaws. Um, I knew I knew God was there, but I'm, I'm telling you when it came out of my mouth, I just thought, Chris, what are you saying? You know, what, what kind of, what kind of Christian am I that I'm doubting God just because things got hard, you know? Um, what kind of Christian am I in front of my soldier? That's you. Know, what if I would have responded differently? Mm. Um, and that was a hard part of that. The, you know, the days were hard just to see what you saw. Um, but it did make you question. It did, it did, you know, or at least for me, it, it made me so angry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because someone did this to, to all these folks, you know, yeah. someone did this, this didn't happen. Someone and, did. And, you, and you're sort of standing in that moment, like, cause there's nothing you can really do about it at that no. point. It sort of happened. Let me ask you this. First of all, again, when I say we don't take for granted what it takes emotionally, right, to share that story, we don't. So thank you. Um, Absolutely. December 13th, 2003, months later, Saddam Hussein is captured like a rat in a hole. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, And if you go back to episode seven of Pick Up the Six podcast, you get to hear from Eric Maddox, who's the chief interrogator who led to those. You're like worlds removed from what Eric is doing in Crete, right? Eric and Bam Bam and those guys are on the hunt. For yep, Saddam, yep. they think they're never going to get him. Twist of fate. God intervenes as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. They get to the guy's son. They get to the lieutenant, right? They ultimately get to Saddam. The day that you heard, we got him. After having seen what you've seen, the victims that had suffered because of his rule and his decree, what was that feeling of satisfaction well, like I that December day for you? It was interesting that, uh, you know, my, my bad day was digging a hole. And that's where they found him. They found him in the same place he was putting all these victims. And I remember, you remember, um, pre, uh, pre invasion weapons of mass destruction was, and then, then all the questions. And I remember Brian, when he was captured, I said, we just captured our weapon of mass destruction. He was a weapon of mass destruction, you know, not a chemical, not a rocket. Um, he is the web, he was the weapon of mass destruction. And, and when, when, when they captured him, uh, there was vindication of, of our efforts. And, and I know he was one man, right. And, and, you know, that was year one of a long war. Um, but he was the weapon of mass destruction that I believe we were looking for when I was there and we found him and I was, you know, I met guys, uh, I don't know if you remember early Oh three, uh, when they put out a war, like a reward for him. Oh yeah, man. You well, had the I whole, was, you had the whole, I mean, look, that's why you had the deck of cars. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And his brothers, Uday and Kuse, I think. I was two blocks down I mean, the street 10, when they 10, got 20, 30 million a piece. Yeah. They, and I was two blocks down the street from their house when they got, when they got the brothers. Yeah. It was awesome. Like, dang. If but, I had um, gotten them, I should have shot the ground. It was, it was, uh, it was yeah. a great day to be a soldier. Yeah, sure but, was. but what was crazy, you know, I met a guy when we were doing humanitarian ops, I met a doctor, medical mm. doctor, Iraqi medical doctor. And, uh, I had to, I had to kill some time. We were waiting for somebody to come in to do an assessment or something. So I'm just sitting with this dude. He spoke really good English and we were just chatting and they had just said reward for Saddam. And I was like, yeah, I knew soldiers couldn't get the reward, right? So I, I told the guy, I said, hey, sir, you know, if I catch him, I'll give him to you and we'll split them. <laughs> yeah, right. I was just joking, right? Right. And this dude's face changed on, a, on an instant. I mean, this kind doctor, he spun around and looked at me with hate in his eyes. And he says, Chris, you find him. You give him to me. 
he said, I'll give him back to you in two weeks, but you won't recognize him. Mm. And he said, I've lived 30 years under this guy. And he talked about his family. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's a three-decade-old weapon of mass destruction. You know, And, yeah. and the, the yeah. people of that country that, that had been victimized. And this guy, I mean, he, it was just, I was just joking around, you know. And then all of a sudden, it got real serious real quick. Yeah, real quick. And, uh, you know, when we were leaving the deployment, my interpreter was a, a great young man. Um, who took a lot of risk, man, that guy was really taking a risk, you know, cause I get to go home. He lives there. Um, and he's helping us out. And I was 101st screaming Eagle guy and, um, we're getting ready to leave. And he was like 27 years old and I'm getting ready to leave and I'm telling him goodbye. And he hands me his, his prayer beads. And he says, Chris, I know we don't believe the same thing. But he said, I want, he was a, you know, he was a, an Islamic guy and he, he came mm. to me and he said, I know we don't believe the same thing. He said, but I want you to know that I pray for you every day. Whoa. And he said, I have never lived a day of freedom until the Eagles came and gave me my freedom. And I took my pocket knife and I cut my 101st patch off of my sleeve and I gave it to him. And I was like, you know, yeah, that's what, you know, that's what America is, man. We, you know, we, we, and he told me, he said, Chris, you left your family. You left your home to come to my home. And he said, you, uh, you, he said, the Eagles gave me my freedom and I've never lived a day free until now. And I mean, it was just, yeah. um, you know, it's what you do it for. Right. Yeah. Here, um, guys, Chris, we're up against time. I'm so grateful, man. We could talk honestly for hours and, and maybe come back at some point. Cause I'd love to talk more about just your journey after that. But, you know, one of the things I think about and the reasons why I wanted to, to have this conversation, in fact, guys, I'll tell you, I said, Chris, I want to have you on pick up the six. And you're like, why? You're like, I, I seen the people have been on your show. Why you want to have me on? I said, exactly. You're exactly why I want to have you on. You, you epitomize what we're trying to do on this program, which is to highlight people that have made a difference, have gone above and beyond themselves through service, purpose, and impact, service before self. A couple of things, guys, I want us to think about as we listen to this conversation, heavy conversation. First and foremost, when you say thank you for your service to a soldier, to an airman, to a Marine, to a Coastie, now you've just heard very real stories about what that service entailed. So I want you to take I want you to take the weight of that with you when you say that. Don't just say it flippantly when you see somebody in uniform. And I know you guys don't, right? You guys listening, I know that you don't. This audience doesn't. But think about what you're really saying when you say thank you for your service. What somebody's been through. What they carry around with them too. And the second part is this. What they carry around with them. We talked about this on the episodes uh when I was talking to uh to the guys that are involved in the Afghan evac. And I said, "Imagine this. These Afghan families are sprinting away from evil dictatorship, right? The idea of Taliban taking over their country again. They'll wade through sewer waters to get out, right? And they'll come to our country and they'll, uh, and they'll establish a home here. And maybe you get stuck in line behind somebody that doesn't look like you or sound like you, and they're taking longer at the grocery store. They're slower behind the wheel. Extend some grace because you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they've been through. Or in this case, a soldier that, 20 years removed from having to go through something horrific like this. You don't know what people are going through. So the, the few underlying themes of today's conversation is when you say that, thank you for your service, mean it and think about what maybe that person is asked to do on behalf of our nation and then continue to extend grace because you don't know what somebody is going through uh, and, and, what, and what you've been asked to do for the country that people still sprint to. Right. For the country that American flags continue to wave across France because we went through in World War II and ensured their freedom and safety. Right. We can continue to be that. I know you believe that, my brother, for sure. I'm going to tell you, you know, that. And this is for me, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I would not trade my worst day to not have been a part of it. Mm. I would, um, I remember the day I got out of the, I got off active duty. Um, I was lost, man. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a plan B, like I told you before. 
And my wife wrote me an, a, a note and she left it on the, on the dresser and it said, Chris, I don't care what you wear to work. You're going to be a soldier till the day you die. And I was like, you're right. I am a soldier. And, uh, and it, I wouldn't trade it. And I, and I tell you, Brian, I've missed, you know, I've, I've, because of the army, I've missed six and a half years of my family's of my 20 year marriage. Um, I've missed two wonderful years spending it with my kids. Um, it's hard to, to when, when the phone rings, I've deployed uh, twice since I've had kids while I was a cop. Um, I just walked down the hall, got a phone call. Now it's time to go in 30 days. Yep. Yep. And it's hard to look at your kids and say, you're so important to me, but this phone rang and I'm leaving for a year. Um, and it's hard to, to say that to, you know, my beautiful daughter and my beautiful son that I'd kill or die for them. And you look at them and you say, you know, daddy's got to go for a year, but you're still the most important thing, you know, because that phone call seems a heck of a lot more important than them when you're walking out. But what I, I pray is that my children know how much I love them and how much I'm willing to sacrifice for them because I love them and, and for nothing in return. But also I hope that they see that the mission is more important than the man. And, and that's what being a, a servant means. And, and, yeah. and the army doesn't have a monopoly on service and they don't have a monopoly on, on uh, hardship, but um, it is something that is obviously in, intense and, and um, but like you were talking about how, you know, you don't know what that guy in front of you is going through. Um, one of my friends at work made a comment, everybody's sitting on something. Yeah. You don't know, you know, you don't know what someone is, is going through until you know, it manifests in some way. And, you know, to kind of bring back Brad Borders, who is, uh, you know, I hope he's not listening because I don't want, he's such an awesome dude, man. Yes. Uh, you know, our, our friendship started for a combined love of chicken wings and UFC. But, um, you know, as a, as a, as a cop, I had a soldier or an officer, excuse me, struggling. And uh, my first call was, Brad Borders. Yep. Cause you know, he's done some heavy lifting, right. With some really, really just best warriors we've got. Oh, he, conti uh, he continues to oh, yeah. put the mission before the man himself, yeah. meaning, right. Yeah. He puts his men before himself, which means yeah. he's missional. He, yeah. he is such a, and that's my, my, my hope of sharing these stories is that maybe we all can just take a little pause and look at our lives and say, you know what, how can I put the mission before the man, meaning myself, right? How can I put other people before myself? Well, um, you know, and, and, and look, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard, man. Sometimes it's so much it easier is. just to do what you want to do. Yeah, it feels yeah. good. Like, we get, we're, we're busy and we're course. impatient and we're yes. arrogant and right. we're all these other things and we're, and we're entitled and we're all these other things. But, you know, if, especially as, as followers of Jesus, mm -hmm. Our mission field is where our feet are. You know, wherever we're standing should be our mission field. And I mess this up before I get out of bed. You know, oh, yeah. my feet don't hit the floor before I've already messed this up three different ways. But, you know, I, I, I had to come up with a mission statement when I was in school. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to Liberty for a little while. Liberty. Yeah. And I had to do a mission statement. And, I, and, you know, I was the only non- like professional clergyman in the, in the whole class that I was right. in. I'm right. a cop, you know? And, uh, and I said, man, I'm going to look, listen, and love. That's what I'm going to do. That's my mission statement. I'm going to look for opportunities to help people. I'm going to listen to them without judgment. I'm going to love them as hard as I can. Mm. And I said, and that's what I'm going to try my best to do. You know, I've, I've trained to have my head on a swivel. Why don't I look for opportunities to see this? Now, I mess this up, Brian, every day. 
and I get impatient. You ride with me and my daughter and she will like, she's talking me off the, the, the ledge because, you know, someone goes five miles under the speed limit mm-hmm. and I've got places to be. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a good example of a bad example sure. with a lot of this stuff, sure. but you know what, you don't know what people are sitting on yeah. and, and, and your encounter could be the, the lifeline. That's right. Um, I heard a, a guy describe it as I felt like I was drowning. Mm-hmm. And drowning people can't swim over to the lifeguard stand and say, hey, I need help. Someone has to dive in and go get them. And um, so I, you know, I had an in, uh, a situation that I, I, you know, that an officer was struggling and I called Brad Borders and I said, man, I, I need you. And, you know, for anyone that knows him, he's, you don't even have to get the whole sentence out before he's like, what do you need? What can yeah, I do? I'm on my way. Yeah. I'm already in the car. Like, yeah, I haven't even told doing? you what we're doing yet. Yeah. Like, are we going to go, you know, hide a like, I'm in a, I'm in a robe. I'm in, I'm in the car. I'm on my way. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care, man. He's just, he, his default is. Yeah. Yet. But you know what you find, right? Is the more you're around people like that, then, okay, good. Now, all right. Yep. That is a reminder. Let me look. Yeah. Let me listen. Let me love. Yeah. And I mean, you know, his default is yes. Uh-huh. And I love that about him. You're right. Yeah. You know. Um, sacrificial yes is his exactly answer. exactly and um and, you know, his whole life has been that so i call him and he and you know and we we work for, through the the uh the acute problem or situation right because it's heavy right then but he introduces me to a thing called reboot oh yeah um for first responders yeah Re- reboot recovery program yes so go and back remember guys we had evan from reboot recovery on the I'm show months guys, ago incredible you've never met a more cynical skeptical uh guarded group than a bunch of cops right and um you know they're not going to spill their guts to somebody that doesn't walk their mile and um so he introduces me to this and we start you know, uh, we start talking about it and learning about it and everything. And, um, and I get very interested in how do we, how do we help people? And a lot of times people are scared to get involved because I'm not a, I'm not, you know, a, a, a clinician. I'm not school trained in, in that. I'm not a counselor. I'm none of those things, but I love you. Yeah. And I don't need to be a certified lifeguard to come out there in the pool and grab you. I just need to know how to swim and I need to be willing to swim and I need to be willing to get wet. Mm. Maybe get busted up when I grab you and you smack me because you don't know I'm helping. And, and, you know, when you talk about, you know, I call it relational leadership. When you build a relationship with your team, relationships are messy all relationships, good ones and bad ones, they're all messy, right? And so the the cost of that relationship sometimes is is the hard help. Um yep. and and but uh, but the I don't know any other way to do it, man. That's right. That's right. Well you've shown I mean you've you've illustrated that is the way that you're able to do it. Man, my brother, I'm just so grateful, man, that one that we our paths connected, not 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 on accident. That's for sure. As we know here, coincidence is God taking action and choosing to remain anonymous about the results. I stole that line from uh, a great man named Albert Long, uh, who who came up with that. And go look him up. Uh, incredible man that that dedicated his life uh, to the Lord as well. My friend, I just I'm so grateful for man just just to have this conversation, Absolutely. share and, ho- and hopefully you know, hopefully get all of us to kind of remember a little bit of that perspective as we go, as we go throughout our day. Absolutely, brother. Good, man. I'll tell you this much. uh, And we say this quite often on the show. We're so grateful for you. We we thank you for what you've done for our country and also what you continue to do. Cause you said, I poured myself into my soldiers. You continue to pour yourself into your brothers today, fellow officers today. So thank you for that. And I'll say this, we've talked on the phone once and we've done this interview today and I'll say this with all assurance in my heart. I love you. Love you too, brother. See, thank exactly. You for what guys. You do, man. Thank Absolutely. you for, for giving, giving folks the, the opportunity, man. And I, I tell you sometimes in the grace that you're given, you know, when you, when you tell these stories and you walk these miles, you sort of pick your scabs off a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
but it's okay, you know, and, and, right. and, and, and when you reach out to help another person, it picks your scabs off. But I think, you know, what, what grows after that scab is some stronger skin, you know, and we just mm-hmm. uh, I think it makes us, um, it enables us to, 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 to use what we've gone through to help others and help ourselves because we, everyone has bad days, but um, right. I think it's just, I, I love what you're doing, man. I've, you know, when, when Brad told me about you, I, I pulled up your podcast and, and, and started listening away. I'm, I'm, I'm not the class of person that you normally accustomed to, but I do appreciate uh, you, you slumming a little bit. <laughs> no way, man. <laughs> no way, man. No way. All right, my brother, enjoy your Christmas holiday. Hey, and, Merry uh, Christmas to you and your family, brother. You too, my friend. He is Chris O'Toole. What a conversation, guys. Amazing uh, that we get to uh, to look, listen, and love with our man Chris O'Toole. He's Chris O'Toole. I'm Brian Jonas. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.